All right, 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. That is where we're going to be this morning. And this morning we're going to look at uh, a story that, I'll be honest, on a human level, whenever I read this, it kind of breaks my heart just a little bit. Uh, it, it Honestly, it makes me feel, feel pretty sad for Elijah, uh, but it's a lesson that, that each of us has to learn kind of in our own way. But just on, you know, on, on a spiritual level, there's a, there's a lesson to be taught here, but on a human level, uh, I think it is so very relatable to me and probably to you too, and it hurts my heart. Uh, and I feel like Elijah and I, maybe Elijah and you, have a little bit uh, in common. This may sound trivial to you guys, but uh, I assure you it was not to me. I was 17 years old, I was a senior in high school, and I did something I never ever thought that I was going to do. I quit playing baseball. I quit halfway through my senior season, didn't finish out my uh, senior season of baseball, and for a few days, to be honest, it just about broke me. I mean, it just about broke me. And that may not seem like much to you, especially if you didn't grow up playing sports, you may not fully kind of connect those dots, but I promise you, it was everything to me. As a 17-year-old, I had spent the vast majority of my life playing baseball, but I didn't just like baseball, I ate baseball, I slept, I drank, I breathed baseball. To me, as a 17-year-old, my life pretty much revolved around two things, baseball and my girlfriend, and that was pretty much that was pretty much it, uh, and I, I absolutely loved it. And since I, I began playing the game, I, I, I lived for it. I loved practice. I loved to play. I watched movies about it. You guys know my love for the movie Field of Dreams. I loved to study the history of the game, the nuances, the strategy. I liked all of it. I'm telling you, it was everything for me. I made my high, school, uh, my high school team at Carnes High School in Knoxville. I made my high school team uh, against some pretty good odds. Coach didn't know me, knew everybody else that was going to be on the team, uh, but I impressed at tryouts, so I made the team, had a great freshman year, played well for the junior varsity. Uh, my sophomore year wasn't quite as good, but it was a good year. It was, it was fine. Uh, again, on JV, but as a junior, I finally made varsity, and whenever I was on varsity, I thought I was going to get a chance to play some. Did get a chance to play a little bit, but I had a senior uh, in front of me at first base, the position that I played, and so I got to spot start a little bit here and there. Uh, got to play a little bit, had a couple of decent moments uh, my junior year, but as a senior, I thought it would finally be my turn. As finally being an upperclassman senior, able to step into that place, I thought it was going to be my turn, and I was going to get to show what I could do. I still believed in myself. I'd been good at every level of baseball that I had ever played up until that point, so there was no reason for me to believe that I wouldn't be good here. But then in my offseason, my head coach at Carnes left to go be the head coach at Gibbs High School, and I had a new coach. And this coach decided my senior year that he liked the sophomore at first better than he liked me at first base. So I didn't play. Ever. At all. Never. Didn't get a single at bat for the first half of the year. And it was a bitter pill to swallow. I got filled with a lot of anger. I got filled with a lot of angst. I got filled with a lot of jealousy and hatred. It was, for me, difficult. Because I knew I wasn't going to play college ball. I knew I wasn't good enough uh, for that. That this was likely the last season of baseball I was ever going to get to play 
And I felt like it was being taken from me. I felt like I was being robbed of this game that I loved so dearly. Game after game went by, and I just never got to play. Even times when I thought I would be able to spot start, he would put somebody else into that place, into that uh, position. I've been out of high school for almost 25 years now. I still have dreams about this season of my life because it was intense for me at the time. Um, And so four weeks left in my season, I couldn't take it anymore. Set up an appointment to go talk to my coach during his planning period in high school. Went and talked to him and I said, hey, I don't, I'm I'm not getting a chance to play. My opportunities are running out here. Is there going to be a chance where I'm going to get to play at, at some point in this season? And he said, no. He said, I wasn't going to get to play at all, that I was really just going to serve as a role, kind of filling a spot on the bench. And I said that I don't really see much point in me coming back then. He had taken this game that I loved, this thing that I loved, and he had turned it into this thing that, that, that built so much bitterness inside of me. So I quit, and I wept that day. Listen, high school guys, they don't weep at school. Uh, but I wept. Uh, it was heartbreaking for me, and I couldn't stop. Like, when I say I wept, I'm talking like, <laughs> like that kind of, like, I couldn't breathe, kind of, like, wept for hours. Like, it, it was awful. It was, I had to find another teacher and just be like, hey, can I just sit in your classroom uh, well, where nobody else is, because I can't go to class like this. Like, it was, it was awful. It was cold, it was painful in my eyes, it was unfair. To this day, I have no idea how I would have done as a senior. I never got the chance to find out. But it didn't matter how cold or how painful it was, it was done. The coach had chosen someone else, fair or not. And I asked him, why? Why have you chosen this other person? He couldn't give me a reason. He didn't have a reason. He was honest about that. He just felt like that, 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 that guy should be playing and not me. Someone else had been chosen, and I was done. I think most of you guys can probably figure out some story in your life, maybe several stories in your life where you can relate to that, where somebody didn't pick you, where somebody, somebody said, you know what, I prefer someone else over you, where somebody said, you know what, you're not the one that I'm looking for, you're not you're not the one. I'm going to move and I'm going to do something else. This, in some ways, is Elijah's story. It's what we're about to read in the rest of, of 1 Kings chapter 19. And I feel for him. I feel for him, but there's a lesson that we've got to find as we read about Elijah's disappointment. So we're picking up in part two of our story. If you weren't here uh, last week, we did part one and, and, and we kind of stopped mid-story. We stopped and we didn't, we didn't finish the story last week and we're following our hero Elijah. He's just had his big moment on Mount Carmel where he has literally called down fire. God has responded. He's mocked the prophets of Baal. He's killed the prophets of Baal. He's mocked King Ahab and he has been riding high because he thought he was doing exactly what he needed to be doing. And then what we saw last week is that all of that, that he had, he had carefully crafted and designed in order to bring glory to God and to convince the people of Israel to turn back and to make King Ahab repent or to leave, all of those things that he had done essentially did nothing. None of the things that he thought were going to happen ever came to fruition. 
No one budges. No one cares. No one changes. Nothing happens. Elijah's big plan to call out Israel and to change the world has worked perfectly, except for the fact that nobody changed at all. And he's like, man, what, what do I do here? Jezebel, the, 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 the queen, doesn't back down from Elijah. In fact, she comes after him, uh, sets out a death warrant for him, and he sends him fleeing into the desert. And when he gets to the desert, he kind of lays down, throws himself a pity party, says, I just want to die. I'm over this. And an angel wakes Elijah up and then sends him to a mountain, but not just any mountain. It says Mount Horeb in the story at the beginning of 1 Kings 19. We know that better as Mount Sinai. And when he gets up there, he experiences all the same amazing things that Moses does, or Moses had whenever he was up there receiving the Ten Commandments. The wind blew, the earth shook, the fire uh, burned, and all of these great things happened except for one thing. God didn't show up in any of that stuff. God wasn't there in any of that. Moses got to, got to, got to interact with God. He got to, he got to see God etch the, the, the law on the stone tablets. He got to see all of that. And Elijah thought he was the next Moses and he was going to get all that. And he didn't get any of it. Instead, what he got was a whisper. Maybe not even a whisper. Like the, 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 the word that's used there, it's, it's, it's almost like God speaks in the silence. And that's all Elijah gets, an intimate, close whisper. That's where we stopped our story last week. We, did, we, we didn't talk about what the, what the whisper says, really, or, or what happens after that. We stopped right there in that spot. So now the question is, what happens next? Does Elijah get to become the next Moses? Does God give him a new revelation, a new law, a new hope, a new story to tell? What is about to happen for our hero, Elijah? Let's look in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, so when he heard this, this whisper, this still voice, he wrapped his face in cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, if you remember from last week, this is the second time that God has asked Elijah this question. This is the second time that he has done this. Now, just for reference, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, and see what he said the first time that this question was asked. So 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. So he, this, is, this is Elijah's answer the first time. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now let's see his answer the second time. After God has taken the, the time to send him to Mount Horeb to put on this big display, spoken to him in a whisper, let's see what our hero has learned. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Word for word, the same answer. He says the same thing back. Elijah's perspective has not changed a bit. Whatever God was trying to communicate to Elijah, whatever God was trying to get across to him by taking him to Mount Sinai, by putting on this display, by coming to him in a whisper, whatever God was trying to do, Elijah has missed it. 
He's completely missed it. It's gone right over his head. He's taken nothing from it. He still has the same perspective. He still has the same idea. A little bit of fear, a little bit of a pity party, a little bit of a skewed perspective. It's all still there. Elijah is frustrated that things have not turned out how he thought they would. He thought things would change, but nothing has changed. And so this is his assessment of the situation. The problem with his assessment of the situation is it's a very poor assessment. It's limited in its scope, and it's skewed in its information. And this is our first thing that we've got to learn from what happens to Elijah up here on this mountain. Elijah's frustration is natural. It's completely understandable. Don't hear me today saying that you can't be frustrated with God. You can. Just read the Psalms. It's all over the place. It's part of being human. Elijah is frustrated because God didn't do what Elijah thought God should do or would do. And that's a totally normal place for us to be as humans. Both the frustration and the fact that God didn't live up to the expectations. You will get frustrated in your walk with God because he, many times he will not meet your expectations. Now listen, it's not because he can't live up to them. It's because he has a totally different objective than you do. And he has a totally different set of resources at his disposal than you do. We form our expectations. This is natural. This is the way life works. We form our expectations based off of our limited resources and based, of, based off of our very small scope of what we can see. God forms his story and his plan based off an infinite set of resources and a grand vision for the story that he is telling. And we can only see a very, very tiny part of that. It makes sense that we would be frustrated because we are not God, because we aren't him. But we have to couch that frustration in the right context. And I'm saying frustration here. You can substitute whatever emotion is that you're dealing with. It can be anger. It can be depression. It can be sadness. It can be frustration. It can be any of those things. All of those things kind of fit in this dynamic depending on what all is going on in your life. But we have to couch that in the right context. Our frustration or even anger is built on incomplete information and a limited perspective that is tied to our existence here on this earth. God does not suffer from those afflictions. His perspective is not limited and he is not tied to this earth. Just because you can see no good reason for something to happen, even tragic things, just because you can see no good reason for something to happen doesn't mean that there isn't one. It means you can't see it. Or even sometimes you refuse to see it. Don't you look again at what Elijah says. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now listen. We know, I said this when we began in 1 Kings chapter 17, we know very little about Elijah. We know very little about his life. We know very little about what he has gone through or what he has done. But we know enough to know that Elijah is not telling the whole truth here. 
We know enough to know that Elijah's perspective and what he shares back with God is not the full story. He mentions nothing about being sustained by the ravens at the brook for, for, for years. He mentions nothing about going and living with the, uh, with the, the, the widow and how, how her, her, her oil and flour was restored so that they could eat in the midst of the drought and the famine. He says nothing about that. He doesn't say anything about raising the widow's son from the dead. He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't mention the drought that he predicted that came to fruition, the rain that he said would come that did come, and he doesn't talk anything about the fire that rained down from heaven at Mount Carmel. He only mentions his current problem, and that's it. He leaves all the other stuff out, and this is how it works. When we are going through the the muck of this world and we are hurting and confused and frustrated and angry, it is almost impossible to remember the good times and the good moments. The times when things did work like they were supposed to. Because we're not wired to work that way. When we're in the midst of, of pain and frustration, we go into survival mode. And when we go into survival mode, the, the, the thought process is not look at the big picture and the long story. The thought process is deal with what's right here in front of you. We're wired to focus on the moment. So in the moment, our feelings feel justified. But when we take in the full scope of the situation, there's almost always more to the story for us to see. I could relate this to almost any type of frustration that you deal with. This is obviously how marriage conflict works. Even when the conflict is justified and for a good reason, it can be impossible to remember something good about the other person. The only thing that you see across from you in the midst of that conflict is anger and frustration about who they are and what they've done. And the only thing that you can see in that moment is all the dumb things they do, right? that's all you can see. You see all the pet peeves. You see all the frustrations. You see all the, the, just like the line of things that go back as long as you can remember. All I see is dumb things that have done, that have been done. Now, obviously, is that the full totality of the story? Of course not. There's more to be told in that story, but you can't see it. We have to fight to gain a wider perspective, even when everything in us can't stand the person across from us. We have to fight for that. Elijah was on Mount Sinai and he saw some amazing things, but it didn't change his perspective at all. So that should give you some idea about how hard it is for us to change our perspective. If Elijah can stand on Mount Sinai and he can see all of these things happen and he can hear God speak to him and his perspective doesn't change, you should have an idea about how hard it is to change your perspective. Elijah's first problem wasn't that Jezebel was after him. It's that he forgot that God was for him. His problem wasn't rooted in the outside sources of Jezebel coming for him. His problem was rooted in the fact that he forgot about who God was and what God had done. And the vast majority of the time, it's the same for us. It's not the problem in front of us. No matter how hard, how daunting, how frustrating, how discouraging, the problem isn't the thing. It's that we forget or we just don't believe that God is actually for us. This was where Elijah was at. He forgot about God's faithfulness. He doesn't mention it at all, even though we know how God has been faithful the entire time up until this point. 
Listen to how Paul says this and how Paul lays this out in Romans 8, 28. You guys know these verses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? So what shall we say to the fact that God has always been faithful and will always be faithful to us? What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. For Elijah, he could go back to the widow's house and see God's faithfulness. He could go back to Mount Carmel and see God's faithfulness. He could go back to the Red Sea and see God's faithfulness. He could go back to the story of Joshua and see God's faithfulness. He can go back to the story of Joseph and see God's faithfulness. He can go back to the plagues, and to the Passover. And he can see God's faithfulness. He could go back to all of those things and rely on those things. All those things showed him that God was for him. He does none of that. For us, we simply need to go back to the cross. That's Paul's message in Romans 8. If God didn't withhold his own son, then surely he won't withhold anything good from us. Now, that's not a promise of health, safety, or prosperity. Those things are temporary things that are fleeting. It's a promise that he is faithful for eternity. Not for now, not for the temporary time, but forever. And we have to fight for that perspective, especially when life is hard. But also when it's good, too. It's all fleeting. We don't just need a promise for today. We need one for forever. Elijah had all that. He could have relied on all of that, but he didn't. He was too focused on that problem right here in front of him. And whenever he does that, that's what sends him into this kind of like mini pity party that he's throwing here. Let's get back to our text and see what happens after Elijah uh, gives this kind of self-centered answer and response. So 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So he'd sent him all the way south. Now he says, go up north. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be the king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of whatever, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the word of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, if you read through that, you get lost in the names, and you get lost in the details, and you, you, try, to, you try to kind of move through it quickly, you can miss some pretty big things. Sounds like some administrative work that God has for Elijah. That's not quite calling down fire from heaven, but it's something. So it sounds like he's got some administrative work, but, but there's some big things that are happening here. God hears Elijah's complaint and then sends him back out on mission, which is a grace in and of itself. He doesn't shame him or disqualify him. He gives him a new mission. So don't miss that there's grace even in this act. But this new mission is not quite what Elijah had in mind. This is not what he set out to do in 1 Kings 17. 
This isn't really what the ministry of the great prophet of Israel looks like. He gives him three tasks. Did you see the three tasks that he's given in there? One, anoint a new king in Syria. Two, anoint a new king in Israel. Three, anoint a prophet to take your place. Ouch. Do you see what he's done here? God has basically put Elijah on the bench. And he said, it's not your time anymore. You've done your thing. I got somebody else lined up now. I got actually three somebody else's lined up now. God has chosen to accomplish his will through a very odd route. He's chosen politics and secular kings. And he said, that's how I'm going to accomplish my will. For Elijah, this is devastating. This is devastating. It means that the droughts and the fire from heaven aren't the orders of the day anymore. No more spectacular displays of God's glory. God is going to use the very worldly, very ordinary means of politics to do whatever it is that God has planned. So all of Elijah's grand visions of what's about to happen have nowhere to go. They die with him on that mountain. And not only that, Elijah's ministry is so done that Elijah is to go and to find another named Elisha and basically hand the baton off to him. Listen, my heart breaks for Elijah here. I'm not kidding. My heart absolutely breaks for him. This does not seem fair. Just straight up. What God does to Elijah here doesn't seem fair to me at all. Yes, Elijah has felt a little bit sorry for himself, but he's done almost everything else right to this point. Man, he's been a faithful prophet. He stood in the face of what would be certain death as he challenged these other prophets and, the, and, and, and Baal on, on Mount Carmel. He's done all the good things. His confidence in God has been unwavering, at least up until the point where he took off running from Jezebel. He's wanted... He's wanted to see Israel return to Yahweh. He's lived a life of faith in order to see this happen. And when it doesn't happen, he's deeply troubled and saddened by this. And now God essentially says, you're done. You've done, an, you've done a great job so far, but you're done. It actually doesn't even give him that much. doesn't even give him a pat on the back. He just says, no more. God has chosen someone else. And my heart hurts for Elijah here. There are few things more disappointing than when someone says, I prefer someone else over you. Whether that's a romantic relationship, a job interview, a friendship, or a coach to a player, it's crushing. And Elijah, through little fault of his own, has to now endure the same thing. Now, God hasn't rejected him completely. This isn't the, it's not you, it's me speech, and then walking away from him. That's not what's going on here. God still graciously gives Elijah a mission. But that mission underscores what we said last week. God will work however he sees fit. Gone are the, the dramatic displays on the mountaintop. Gone are the, the, the prophesied droughts and the big rainstorms that come at the end of it. Gone is the fire from heaven. And in its place is the anointing of a secular king over a secular country. 
God will work however he sees fit, in whatever means he sees fit, in the spectacular and in the very, very ordinary, in the good and right and just and even, as Joseph tells us, even in the evil that Satan intended. God will work and use all of those things. Elijah wanted the spectacular, and he wanted to be at the center of the moment when it happened. And God said, nah, I think I've got a different plan for you. And not only are you not at the center of this plan, you're barely even a part of it. The only task I have left for you is to find your replacement. Commentators are hard on Elijah in this story. Most commentators are pretty hard on Elijah. They say he deserved this for his pity party that he has thrown. But nowhere does the text actually say that. That's speculation on their part. And it may be true. Maybe this is punishment for his running, and maybe it's punishment for his pity party. But the, the narrator doesn't tell us that. I just think it's terribly sad. My heart hurts for him. Let's see what Elijah does with this. And then let's make a few observations, and that, that'll take up the rest of our time this morning. First Kings chapter 19, verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So he comes, he finds Elisha, and he says, Elisha, come on, you're supposed to come with me. This is the only thing, this, this paragraph right here is the only thing recorded about how Elijah uh, how Elijah handled this benching that he had received from God. He goes to find Elisha. Elisha is stoked. When, it, when he talks about killing the oxen and all that kind of stuff, he's, he's basically just putting away his livelihood at that point. He's kind of he's burning the boats and saying, all right, I'm all in. You say I'm supposed to come, Elijah? I'm coming. He goes, he finds him, he enlists he enlists Elisha as his assistant, which if you'll remember is not what God asked him to do. He asked him to anoint him his successor, but instead he enlists him as his assistant. And on top of that, there's no record that Elijah ever anoints Haziel, and Elisha is the one that anoints Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9. Honestly, I'm not sure quite what to make of that. I don't know if he just straight up disobeyed God or if he obeyed God, but he just it's just not recorded for us. I'm really not sure what to make of it, but uh, some commentators assume that Elijah goes and does it and that he's faithful. Others assume that he's still whining and he doesn't. I'm not really sure why we don't have that, but this is what we've got and this is what we see. What I know is that none of this has turned out how Elijah thought it would. None of this has turned out the way that Elijah wanted it to. It's not what he had hoped. It's not what he had planned on. It's not the vision that he had. He wanted a mass revival of people coming back to God. He wanted, to, to, he, he wanted that to happen through his ministry, through a spectacular ministry that demanded that people respect it and respond to it. And he wanted to be at the center of it all. And what he got was allowed next 
We're done here with you, Elijah. Now, well, there's going to be more to Elijah's story that we're going to see over the next few weeks. He's not completely done just yet. But basically, he's done. What we've seen out of Elijah so far, we won't see much of that anymore. Most of the miracles now are reserved for Elisha. This shift is for good. Elijah never becomes the prophet that he thought he would be. The people never respond in the way that he had hoped. So what do we make out of all this? What do we do with all this? How do, how do you handle this? You take a guy who, who basically does everything right, who truly wanted God to be glorified, but none of that comes to fruition. I'll give you three takeaways for this, and they're all pretty similar to each other. First, God's ways are not ours, even when we have the best motives. We've already talked about this two weeks in a row now. And this one stinks too, man. This stinks for us. This is no good for us, because no matter how good we are, no matter how well thought out our plans are, no matter how carefully orchestrated they are, they will never be God's plans. They never will be. And we have to come to grips with this. It will spare you much hand-wringing and and anxiety if you can come to grips with this. It will save us a lot of sweat and hard work. I'm not telling you don't have dreams. I'm not telling you don't pursue those dreams. I'm not saying that all. What I'm telling you is you better hold on very loosely to those dreams. Because just because you say this is how it is and this is how it's going to be, what I've found is that the more certain you are of your plans the more certain they are to get wrecked somewhere along the way. God just doesn't work on the same, the same way we do. He doesn't think the same way we do. He doesn't have the same limited resources that we do. And he doesn't, he's not after the same objective that we are, even whenever we try to do it the right way. So God's ways are not ours. Second, our kingdoms are not God's kingdom. Listen, in Elijah's story, there's zero indication that he did anything for any reason other than to make God's name great. We can, we can, we can kind of read into it a little bit and see if, how much of it was about Elijah, but there's no indication given to us by the narrator or by anything that Elijah says that we can condemn Elijah and say that it was about him. But we know that Elijah wanted to be at the center of it. We know Elijah wanted to play a big role in it. But even with God's fame and glory at the heart of, his, at the, at the, heart of the mission, Elijah wanted to make sure that it, it kind of funneled through him. And he worked hard to make it happen. But it just wasn't the way God was going to build his kingdom. Not this time. Building sandcastles is hard work. I know some of y'all were at the beach this past week for spring break. Some of y'all probably built some sandcastles. It's hard work. What's even harder is knowing that within a few hours, the tide's going to come in and the sandcastles will be torn down. Yet most of us spend our lives building our own little sandcastles. Our own little sandcastle kingdoms. With our own little flag sitting high above our little sandcastle that we build. Thinking the moat that we dig is going to protect our kingdom. And it'll all be gone. In in well under a hundred years. All the little kingdoms that we're all building, spending our lives on will be gone. Just completely gone. Think about how hard you are working on your little kingdom. 100 years, 75 years, 50 years, it'll be all gone. 
But God's kingdom is forever. And we would do well to lay our treasures up in that one, not in our sandcastles. And the third thing for us to learn here from Elijah is that, that God isn't just a part of your story. Your story is a part of God's story. And that is a big difference. It can be tempting for us to view our lives as this journey that we are carefully crafting and pursuing and that, that God's role is basically just to bless the plan. That we bring God in to kind of baptize the plan and, and bless the plan. Again, even with the best intentions. But God isn't asking us to be the best version of ourselves for our story. He is asking us to give ourselves over to his story. And that's a very different perspective on life. We don't need to be asking the question, what is God's will for my life? We need to be asking the question, who has God called me to be in order to better play the role that God has for me in this story? We sang earlier, here's my heart, Lord. Here's my life, Lord. I think, I think most of us are asking the question, or are, 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 are really kind of singing the song, here's what I'm going to do for you, Lord. Here's what I'm going to do for you, God. Here's what I'm going to do for me. And if you could come alongside, that'd be great. Here's what I'm going to do, and I hope you'll be a part of it, God, but this is where I'm heading. But we should be saying, here I am. Do what you want. Do what you will. Use my life however you want. Elijah's approach was, here's what I'm going to do for you, God, and it's all for you. Bless it. And God said, eh, I think we're going to go a different direction. Thanks, though. We have to be careful about that one. If Elijah made a mistake, it was this. He was writing his own story, and he wasn't really interested in the one that God was writing. When Elijah's story didn't go according to script, he ran into problems, and he didn't know how to deal with them. He failed to recognize that God's story was going according to script, exactly how God intended it to, even if Elijah's wasn't. Psalm 138, 8, what we, what we just read earlier, what we just read and talked about uh, uh, as our call to worship, it says that, that you would fulfill that, that God would fulfill his purpose in my life. That is a very different, very different prayer than that we would do our thing and God would bless it. God didn't need Elijah. Elijah couldn't see why God wouldn't want to use him. Elijah had a good plan. I agree with Elijah. Your plan is good, Elijah. I like it. I'd like to read more of those stories. We'd have more stories to tell in Prob Kids if we, if we had more stories like, like the ones that Elijah had to start with. I like his, his plan. I think Elijah did have a good plan, but it doesn't matter. It wasn't God's plan. So while my heart hurts for him, while, while I can feel the pain of rejection that he is dealing with, the pain of feeling like you're not enough, I know what it's like to be left behind and forgotten. I know what it's like to be miserable while you try to figure out what God's plan looks like and why it looks the way that it does. But I also know the comfort of knowing that God hasn't forgotten me. That his plan doesn't exclude me. 
that his work has rescued me. And that whatever part I get to play in the story he is writing, it's just grace upon grace. You see, whenever I quit the baseball team, listen, there's no like, there's no like great like spiritual story that comes from this. It was just a bad time for me. It was not good. But I also know that about the same time that I quit the baseball team, there were a lot of other good things that were happening. One of the things that I know was happening is I spoke for really only the second time in my life to our FCA in high school. Now, I would have done that whether I quit the baseball team or not, so I'm not trying to make this parallel that because this happened, that happened. I would have done it either way. But the point is, I spoke there, and God was confirming for me in those very early days that he had a different route for me, that it wasn't going to be through, uh, through the, the, the plan or what, what I had hoped for or any of these other things, that he was going to be moving, moving me into a place where I would stand up here and I would do this kind of stuff for a living. I didn't know that was the plan. In fact, I laughed in the face of people who said that might be part of the plan because I thought that was a ridiculous thing to, to say. Uh, but, but God was doing that. You see, my perspective was so limited. I couldn't see what else God was doing. But God was working. He was doing good things. And he had a plan for me to glorify him in a way I never would have chosen for myself. And so it is for you. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're dealing with, it can be that the hardships you're going through are so that you can help other people in those same hardships one of these days. Or it could just be the fact that you're just going through some bad stuff. And God's redirecting or, 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 or changing some things and kind of rearranging some things. And you can just see the bad, you can't see the good that's happening at the same time. All that can be true. So the question that I have for you is, what is the part that you're playing in God's story? Where is it that you're supposed to take this and go with this? Maybe you're just like Elijah right now, and you're frustrated because you don't know what's next. You feel aimless. You feel like you've been benched. Or maybe you feel like God's actually doing some great things for you. All of these things are, are great places for us to be so long as we carry the right perspective. And that perspective runs through the cross. It has to run through the cross. And it has to run through the joy and the triumph of the resurrection. You see, if God sent his son, then the resurrection that follows that is the evidence that God will use anything to accomplish his glory. And that's what he did on Easter Sunday. And that's what he'll do in your life too. So I hate it for Elijah. I do. But I also know that the bigger story being told here is not Elijah's story, but it's God's story. And he will always write his story. Yours will never, never trump his. And if you can maintain that perspective, it can help you through a lot of things in life. So what part are you playing? Where are you at in the story that God is writing? Will you pray with me? Father, it is grace upon grace that we would be a part of the story you are writing at all. That we wouldn't just be a, a footnote. That we wouldn't just be completely 
uh, discarded and dismissed for our sin and our rebellion and how we actively worked against that story. But instead, because of the cross, because of uh, what you have done through your son, that we can be brought in and brought close and made to be a part of that story. So Father, help us to have the zeal of Elijah, but the humility to know that you will work however you need to work. That you don't need us for that story. But may we graciously lean on you and thank you when you let us be a part of it. It's in Christ's name we pray.